This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, March 13th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Applying old-school rules of political TV advertising to the Internet has significant implications for free speech. Alan Dickerson is an attorney at the Institute for Free Speech. We spoke earlier this month. As you noted in your uh, speech at today's talk here at the Cato Institute at the Who's Afraid of Big Tech uh, conference, uh, you talked about Russia and Russia's influence in the presidential election of 2016. What's wrong with an effort to try to crack down on the kinds of uh, advertising or, uh, you know, uh, interloping that uh, Russians did to move the 2016 election? Well, nothing at all. It's a question of how you do it. Um, a lot of my my concern is, you know, essentially that there's a lot of talk about ways in which uh, this could be addressed. But I mean, let's let's go back to the facts. Um, you know, the the Russian efforts I, I think were uh, substantial and sophisticated, but they were almost you know we're talking maybe a total of a hundred thousand dollars of spending on on ads uh, and. The majority of Russian activity was was not paid advertising, which has been the the, the thrust of most regulatory attempts. Uh, and most of it actually wasn't about the election in the sense that you know it didn't say vote for, vote against any of the candidates. A lot of it didn't even mention the election. Uh, instead, it was uh, discussions about hot button topics. Uh, you know, usually as a matter of of social policy. And and usually on both sides of those topics, an attempt to divide Americans and, and alienate them from the government. So I, I think there's there's two issues here. I mean, the first is that no one has I haven't seen a legislative proposal that would deal with what Russia actually did in 2016. Again, you know, posting uh, for the most part non compensated, you know, non not paid ads, but just stuff on the internet and on social media platforms. Uh, talking about issues of public affairs in divisive ways, um, I have yet to see a legislative proposal that would that would address that activity without spiraling into a a, a really strict, um, frankly, quite frightening regulation of Americans' basic political activity along those lines. If you're going to regulate Russia's ability to put stuff on the internet about um, you know divisive issues of public concern. It's that's hard to do without impacting Americans, and you know, there's there's obviously a lot more American activity than there is Russian. That's the first problem, and the second is you know, and this is something of a of a personal view, but I just don't think it's going to be effective. That the the attempts to kick uh, comparatively small amounts of activity offline uh, isn't how we generally deal with. Uh, these sort of efforts by foreign intelligence adversaries. We usually do that through good old-fashioned deterrence. We use sanctions and our own intelligence apparatus and you know other other levers of national power to convince Russia it's a bad idea. We don't try to track down every little post. Following on that, uh, it seems uh, misplaced in the sense that if uh, Russians were attempting to target uh, Americans to rattle our institutions, that's not a call to necessarily impact Russia. It's a call to make our institutions more robust. Absolutely. Um, both both in the cultural sense that that hopefully Americans can, you know, by talking to each other and, you know, amongst ourselves, <laughs> gather a little bit more confidence in, in our ability to self-govern. 
Um, so uh, with respect to online advertising that uh, political actors in the United States, let's leave uh, foreign actors out of this, uh, to the extent that my buddies and I want to put some money in a cigar box and then they, we want to take that money and spend it on online ads targeting a specific geographic area to get our good buddy who we think would, would make an excellent congressperson, uh, what stands in the way of that and what ought to stand in the way of that? Well, I mean, I think a lot of this is, you know, I'm a, I'm a First Amendment lawyer and I see things through that prism, but that that can that can be a trap. Uh, you know, one of the big issues here is that because because you know, your and your friends are a good example, but quite often there isn't a lot of money in the system for these sort of these ad buys. Uh, it's it's a comparatively small portion of the overall economic ecosystem of online advertising. And to the extent that what we're looking at are are regulatory environments that are going to impose uh, really substantial compliance costs, it, it doesn't take long for the costs of complying with a new legal regime to overwhelm the value of the advertising itself. So the example I have in mind here is uh, Maryland, which passed a law which, among other things, required uh, those selling ads, including newspapers, uh, at least their online presence to keep very uh, very granular records of what those ads were. And it wasn't just you know smaller entities that looked at the the cost of maintaining that database and said it's not worth you know the juice isn't worth the squeeze. You had even Google exiting the political ad market in Maryland because Google, with all of its resources, looked at the compliance burdens and said this simply isn't worth it. the The value of the advertising we're going to get is going to get overwhelmed by the compliance costs. You know and that that's bad business, but it's also, you know, classic First Amendment chill. That's political activity that you, that your friends or or anyone else in Maryland simply wouldn't have been able to do using a Google platform. So uh, these kinds of regulations that that a lot of uh, folks, you know, on the on the left, I think more so than on the right, are going after, uh, do not necessarily target the speech itself directly, but as you note uh, in Maryland, targeting. Uh, the people who would be facilitating that speech. That's right, and that's a departure from how we usually think of regulating, you know, paid, you know, campaign finance, uh, where the, the 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 tradition has been to put the emphasis and the the burdens on on the actual speaker, and and not on you know intermediaries who aren't doing the speaking. So how does that uh, how does that change the analysis, and how does that change the the likelihood of those things? Uh, uh, standing up to scrutiny. Well, I mean, legally, uh, at least one judge, the judge reviewing the Maryland law, which was which was enjoined, um, you know, he looked at that and he said, "Well, what you're really doing is you're not you're not just imposing some sort of requirement on people who want to do political speech. You're 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 imposing uh, a compelled speech. Basically, you're you're forcing the Washington Post to talk about the donors who are on its platforms." Uh, and you know, traditionally, we, we've said that it is far worse for the government to to force speech, um, even than to maintain silence. And so, the judge imposed strict scrutiny, and at least at the injunction stage, you know, uh, prevented the law from going into effect in certain ways. Uh, so, I, I think it is it is worse in that sense that the, that meeting of the there's that meeting of interests between the speaker and the regulatory burdens is, is divorced, and you're just sort of shifting all those burdens onto someone who isn't even trying to talk, is just trying to carry out a business. 
So uh, how does that change uh, how courts would be looking at this down the road? I mean, it, it seems as if like when you talk about, uh, I'm trying to think of the, the legislation, the Disclose Act, for example, uh, that imposes burdens on the people who want to speak but also on the facilitators of that speech, right? Yes, it does. And I, I think that you're going to see, I think when courts, you know, if that legislation, which is, is a part of the HR1 bill that's, that's currently pending in the, the democratically controlled house, you know, if, if that does become law, um, you know, I, I think there, there's, there's inevitably going to be litigation. And in that litigation, judges are going to have to ask themselves those two questions. You know, one, to the extent what you're doing is, is forcing, um, is forcing organizations to carry a required government message. Uh, is that different from what we usually, you know, the sort of disclosure that we usually see in campaign finance in, in meaningful ways? Um, and I think there's indications the answer might be yes. Uh, and two, you know, are just as a matter of fact, are we going to drive uh, some substantial portion of, of, those, of those platforms and publishers out of the marketplace uh, by just creating these these additional burdens and and regulatory costs, and that just raises you know the classic question of you know in the First Amendment space you're not supposed to be able as the government to do things indirectly you can't do directly, and imposing costs that will swamp the value of the speech starts to look a lot like that. You and I have discussed this on many previous podcasts. Careful listeners of this podcast will know that Alan Dickerson is here a lot, um, but with respect to trying to conform advertising in a digital space to uh, you know to meet the same requirements that it w would exist for television, for radio, for print ads, what are the specific complications that arise? Well, I think there's there's two big sort of buckets of complication. Uh, and, and you know I get it. you've got these these organizations, these these government agencies and whatnot that, you know, are used to everything looking like, you know, they're they're built like hammers and so they assume everything's a nail and there's a lot of one size fits all regulatory approaches. Uh, but the, the internet space is different, I think, in in two important ways. One is that the the economics of it are different. Uh, and I know you you watched what I what I said earlier today at the conference, but I put up this big chart um, that was done by by NetChoice. And it sort of showed all of the different ways in which someone who goes out there who purchases advertising, you know, how those those dollars and that 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 purchase filter through uh, an almost dizzying array of media of of intermediary organizations and companies before they finally get to the consumer and the final publisher. Um, and that's different from what happens with with cable and radio, where you're coming in, and you're saying, you know, I want X amount of time on your station. Uh, you know, here's the script I want, and you write a check. Uh, and so, you know, keeping the keeping the paperwork of who is the you know the original purchaser of that that ad on the radio or on television is comparatively easy. Um, it, it's it's just it's just more complicated a question, and therefore a more expensive question when you do it online. Uh, that's that's one big difference. And the other big difference is that, you know, the actual product, you know, the type of ad that you do on television or radio is is a pretty standardized thing. Uh, you know that, you know, a TV ad is going to be a certain period of time, generally, you know, 15 or 30 seconds. Radio ads are going to be a general period of time. Um, they're going to air a certain amount of time in the day. Uh, every 
every TV and radio station gets exactly 24 hours to be on the air and, and do what it's going to do, whether that's that's content or advertising. And, and none of that's true online. Um, it's not only the fact that instead of just having 24 hours of programming, you've got, uh, if not limitless, certainly much more extensive opportunities to to put content out there. Uh, it's also that the the types and, and forms of ads change. So, you know, one example is I'm sure everyone has seen a, a TV political spot and seen where, you know, the candidate gets on screen and says, I'm so and so and I, you know, I approve this message. And there's there's some other verbiage that's in there. Uh, how do we think about those requirements when we get out of the broadcast space and we start talking about, you know, a, a small ad that's designed to fit on an Apple Watch? Or you know the the range of of time limits. I mean, there are commercially available six second, uh, you know, online advertisements. Uh, when you when you've got a regulatory regime built around fifteen or thirty second TV ads, uh, you're going to end up with disclaimers that swallow the entirety of that product, and, and that's that's troubling both because you worry about calcifying uh, the market, you know, making it impossible for there to be innovation for new types of speech and and advertisement to be developed. Uh, but you're also, I think I think this is more of a legal point, you know, the extent that you've got a, a regime that says, unless you carry this particular government required disclaimer on your ad, it is illegal. Well, if you've got a seven second disclaimer, you've just you've just made it illegal to purchase a six second political ad on the internet. Um and I and I think those those problems working together are are sort of a good illustration of exactly how complicated this gets and why the analogy to um, to radio and broadcast is fairly inapt. And you and the, the perverse outcome, uh, I suppose, is that political speech is therefore disadvantaged among the kinds of speech you can do on the internet. Exactly, because it's, it's more expensive. They don't have these same requirements for commercial speech. Alan Dickerson is an attorney at the Institute for Free Speech. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.